Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, our panel shed light on the intricate impact of Western powers on the political and social landscape of the modern Middle East. Exploring the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the subsequent actions of colonial powers like Britain and France, our panel delves into how their interventions shaped artificial nation-states, often disregarding ethnic, linguistic and religious boundaries. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode uncovers the profound legacy of Western intervention, which continues to influence the modern Middle East and global affairs. Right, well, hello. For those of you who were here for the last session, hello again. Um, so, my name's Akil Ahmed. I'm going to be your host for this session. And it's a session on the birth of the modern Middle East. So, something quite easy. Um, the session we just had before was about the Ottoman Empire. And that was a romp from Osman, the creator of the Ottoman Empire, all the way to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the 1920s, mm-hmm. uh, which is where. Well, probably not the 1920s, just before that, which is probably where we start to begin the story of the birth of the modern Middle East. So we have with us two fantastic people who will talk about their work. Um, We have a change to the booking. (laughs) Somebody else was supposed to be here, but we had a fantastic replacement in one of the top (laughs) academics, Oxford professor and consultant on a couple of my programs over the years as well, and he still sat talking to me, and had, had the audacity and the good sense to tell my team politely, that man doesn't know what he's talking about, that won't work, we do this instead. And I went along with it because of who he is. So we've got this fantastic gentleman here. We've got Professor um, Eugene Rogan, and I have, and uh, I'm, I'm gonna speak a bit slowly, and we all have to speak a bit slowly because our next guest has had a, well, perforated eardrum. So he's struggling with his hearing a little bit at the moment. So please, apologies for that, uh, if I have to repeat myself a few times. Uh, And that is um, uh, Gardner Thompson, the writer of this fantastic book, Legacy of Empire, Britain, Zionism, and the Creation of Israel. So there you go. This is going to be a nice enough subject, isn't it? So I'm going to kick off straight away by turning to you, when does the shaping of, or the birth of the, mid, of the modern Middle East begin for you, Eugene? It's, it's such a difficult question to pinpoint to a precise date. In, in writing my earlier book, The Arabs, I trace the origins of the modern Middle East to kind of three distinct periods. One being that period of late Ottoman rule where a lot of the ideas and technologies of Europe were being translated for the Arab world by the Ottoman center. And then the second period being the period of the uh, European imperial domination of the region, which begins and intensifies in the course of the 19th and 20th centuries. And then it's really during the Cold War that I argue that there's an emergence of a sovereign modern Middle East. So I think you have different Middle Easts that emerge at different times. You'll have the Middle East of the state system that emerges out of the First World War. You'll have a sovereign Middle East with the creation of the United Nations and the signing of the UN Charter. So, you know, 
I think it, taking it back to 1897 would fit very well in viewing these sort of multiple emergences as a way of understanding the tensions that have shaped a region that we've all come to know more through its conflicts than, let's say, by the positive impact of its culture. Well, that's good, because I was hoping we would start at the end of the 19th century. Um, <laughs> so, whew, so thank God for that. Right, so if we, do, if we take the end of the, 18, uh, the 19th century as the birth of the modern Middle East, um, what's the key moment then? There's obviously a key moment which goes on to shape the fertile crescent uh, in, in the de declaration, but obviously that is for, for you, in the, in, if looking at the wider Middle East, is there a key moment? Again, I, I hate to be such a stubborn <laughs> academic, mm. but I, I see evolutions. Mm. And so, I mean, I, I see what's going to really be a distinction from the old order of empires to a, a modern order of, of nation states. Mm. Something like the emergence of Egypt under the family of Mehmed Ali, uh, often called the founder of modern Egypt. He comes to become the governor of Egypt in uh, the first decade of the 19th century, and he will rule until 1848, and by the time he dies, he, he bestows to his successors a distinct part of the Ottoman Empire that is based around the Nile called Egypt, it has its own institutions of government that will get more and more autonomy in the course of the 19th century, mm. so that by the time the British occupied in 1882, it is a distinct state in its own right, and it's a, it's a modern state in the way we think of that kind of Westphalian modern state. It just happens later for other parts of the Ottoman Empire. It happens later for other Middle Eastern territories like the Persian Empire, which becomes Iran, or indeed even Central Arabia, which would become Saudi Arabia. So I would see rather than a key turning point for my history mm. writing, it's these sort of evolutions towards sovereign states. And it's only when you get sovereign states you leave behind the old world of empires and the modern world as we think of it, in my view. And so when we talk about, the, so I think if we, go, if we go to the First World War, so the First World War effectively creates, the, the Ottoman Empire loses. We, yeah, you may have to go over some of the old ground from the, on again. But the Ottoman Empire mm -hmm. is on the losing side mm -hmm. and its empire is carved up. Mm -hmm. Is that the beginning of the modern Middle East? It is certainly an yeah. uh, important change away from the imperial order to breaking the Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire into separate states. And it happens not by anyone consulting with the peoples involved or gaining their consent, but rather as a kind of division struck between the three wartime allies, Russia, France, and Britain. And their thinking was, they knew that they were going to destroy the Ottoman Empire, its territories would then be up for grabs. And they wanted to make sure that coming out of total war with Germany and Austria, they wouldn't then go to war with each other over what would be basically imperial disputes. And so they, in the course of the First World War, initiate a process of partition diplomacy. How do we carve up the Ottoman Empire? That involves many important documents. The Balfour Declaration is one of the last ones, actually that will reflect the changing ambitions of the European states in the Middle East in line with their wartime experiences and their shifting strategic awareness. So what they start with in 1915 when they initiate this partition diplomacy will evolve tremendously and will lead, for instance, Britain, which had no territorial ambitions in the Ottoman Empire in 1914, 
coming away with very clear territorial ambitions. The, the really curious one is Palestine, a territory that, was agreed, that all three powers, Russia, France, and Britain, wanted a piece of. And rather than fight over it in Sykes-Picot, the Allies agreed to internationalize Palestine. They paint it brown. It's not going to be British. It's not going to be French. It's going to be shared. And I, I put it to you, and I, I believe to, to Gardner to develop, that the whole Balfour Declaration is about rethinking Britain's priorities in Palestine and perhaps leveraging the Zionist movement to help to justify a change in policy there. So I'll pass the baton back. Well, yes, the Balfour Declaration. Um, uh, there was a uh, debate in the House of Lords uh, six years ago to commemorate the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. And when a cousin of mine who worked uh, in Parliament gave me the transcript, I was shocked by the extraordinary ignorance and prejudice of almost all of the great and the good who spoke in that debate. The way I look at the Balfour Declaration is that it... Lloyd George is someone whom I, I regard as too clever by half. He thought lots of things were... Lots of boxes were ticked by the Balfour Declaration, but one of the main ones was the anti-Semitic box, which, of course, he would not have admitted to. Remember that uh, Balfour, who issued the declaration, was in his name, uh, was the Prime Minister in 1905 when the Aliens Act was passed. And the Aliens Act was passed essentially to keep Jews out of London. Uh, you have almost certainly heard of Joseph Chamberlain's offer to the Zionist movement a couple of years earlier, uh, in 1903, to offer a bit of East Africa, etc., Again, that was, that was consistent with the British view. The British view was, yes, we understand, we sympathise with the persecution, persecuted Jews, not, of course, of Germany at that time, but Russia and Eastern Europe. We, we're, we're sorry for you, but you can't come here. And what Zionism offered was an alternative destination, which was Palestine, and that ticked a number of other boxes. Lloyd George couldn't bear the French, and he knew the French had some interest in Palestine, he didn't want them there, particularly looking after the holy places. Catholics looking after the holy places, no. Um, he also seems to have been part of this very difficult movement to define of Christian Zionism, where there was a kind of philo-Semitic uh, sort of identity with the people of the book, um, and also some remarkable um, assumptions and beliefs about the end of the world, that somehow the Jews would have to regather in when I say regather, that's also controversial, in Palestine before the coming, or the second coming, etc. So for Lloyd George, it ticked lots of boxes, but I think we have to acknowledge a strong streak of anti-Semitism. Indeed, Weissman played on this. He played on the complete myth that there was somehow a world jury manipulating the world. Mm -hmm. We bought into that. Churchill believed it. And we felt that we had to uh, buy support from these people at the height of the war in 1917, when nobody knew who was going to win, Balfour Declaration was initially to help us win the war. What's remarkable is that Lloyd George clung on to it afterwards. So there was a strong anti-Semitic uh, anti ingredient in this. And don't take my word for it, the only Jewish member of Lloyd George's cabinet in 1917, mm -hmm. Edward Montague, denounced the forthcoming announcement as anti-Semitic. Well, I mean, the fear was that the Balfour Declaration and Zionist settlement in Palestine 
would be a push factor to drive the British Jews into a category of not being British anymore, but having a kind of Jewish ethnicity. And for so many of the establishment Jewish British citizens, their struggle to be given equality in the society was being undone by a movement which was saying Jews are a nation and they yes. deserve to have their own state, yes. which colors the writing of the Balfour Declaration. Yes. And there are huge, huge con contradictions here. Zionists did not believe, and I'm, I'm not doubting the, the, the um, sincerity of Zionism, they simply did not accept that assimilation would work, even though it did, and some of the leading Zionists were the most assimilated Jews of their day. Uh, Weissman was one, Herbert Samuel another. Um, but there was, Montague's fear was indeed that if you label Jews as a separate people with a separate destiny, then everywhere where there are Jews will be thinking, well, these Jews aren't really citizens. They're not really one of us. They are different. Maybe they should go to Palestine. And of course, another really important thing about the Balfour Declaration is that it acts as a template for other countries. And most important of all, in America in 1924, the Johnson-Reeds Act uh, effectively barred Jews from America, certainly in anything like the numbers that they had been pouring into. America is where Jews wanted to go to from persecuted East Europe, not Palestine. And they went there in their millions, literally two and a half million or so. Mm -hmm. mm. Now, obviously, there's much more to the Middle East than, than Israel and Palestine. And after the First World War, you know, we get after the First World War, a series of countries start to be created, but they're created under the, a mandate, whatever. I mean, I mean, how does that work? How did the, how did the mandate work, and, and how was it all carved up? Because not every single, not all countries were directly ruled, were there? There were certain countries, not necessarily as part of a mandate, but certain countries, Saudi Arabia, for instance, yeah. countries that were created, uh, but weren't necessarily directly ruled by the British. So how does it, after the First World War, how, once, this, once, the, once the, the colonial powers come into play and the Ottomans are turfed out completely, mm -hmm. um, how is it shaped physically? Well, in a sense, for the victorious powers after the First World War, there was this difficulty in justifying why they'd been at war for so long and suffered such high losses. And in that debate, Getting war prizes in Ottoman territory was one quick way to demonstrate that there were benefits that came to Britain and France for their wartime suffering. So securing key colonial territories to the British and French empires was seen as being an important part of domestic politics after the war. That impulse comes into contradiction with a new political discourse coming out of the now discredited American president, Woodrow Wilson, discredited because of his own racism in the United States, where he fired the first black postmaster general in American history because he was black. So in talking about the Wilsonian moment, we do so now with a far more nuanced understanding of Wilson. And my own sense is Wilson's anti-imperialism had far more to do with American ambitions to gain markets to their industrial goods and saw empire as a zone of exclusivity that allowed France and Britain to cut Americans out of selling their goods in whole parts of Asia and Africa. So allowing all of that, in the 14 points that Wilson used as part of his justification for drawing America into this European conflict, there's a language of anti-imperialism, of 
not trading in peoples or in territories as chattels, and in national self-determination. That went head on against the partition of Ottoman territories, of the land grab, the war prices, that was European thinking. And to square these two, they latched on to another creation of Wilson's, which is to have an a international body to resolve disputes, which would come to be known as the League of Nations. And they justified the partition of Ottoman territories and the parceling of these lands out to Britain and France, not as colonies, but as newly emerging states, immature, who would need the tutelage of an established democracy to help them shape the institutions of modern statehood. And that squared perfectly with Wilson's thinking. It was something that then you could justify in international bodies as somehow legal or just or moral. But as far as Britain and France were concerned, it's imperialism by another name. They, you had protectorates, you had crown colonies, you had all kinds of different imperial situations. The mandates were just the latest to be added to that. And within that context, Britain and France went about their business quite differently. But they each drafted the boundaries of the new states of the Middle East. So you will get an Iraq, a Syria, a Lebanon, a Palestine, which will then be broken into a Palestine and a Transjordan as new imperial sovereign realities that will be with us down to the present day. There are minor adjustments to borders here and there, Palestine most noticeably. Um, and, and in that process, I guess you could say that this is, uh, again, central to when we can talk about the emergence mm. of a modern Middle East done under imperial terms. But, but what does it deliver us at that time? Once they make this decision, what do we get? We get, a, you know, we get certain countries under certain spheres of influence, but we also get countries which, for some reason, aren't. How is it, how, how is it all defined? How do you create Transjordan, for instance? You know, and who ends up taking over Transjordan? And, 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 and you know, why? Because it's, it's, you know, we, we talk about these things we now do. as kind of like entities, but actually they never existed. They didn't. And so these, these are colonial creations. And Britain and France, as I said, went about it quite differently. Crudely put, France approached Syria and Lebanon, its two mandates, quite directly as colonies. They, they posted high commissioners to run them, and they took a much more direct approach. Britain was trying to, they, they debated this. There were certain imperial officers coming from the Indian experience, who particularly in Iraq, wanted to shape this new mandate of Iraq in the image of the Raj. They even wanted to bring a couple million Indian workers to come and help with the development of the agriculture, the industry, build the cities. Others coming out of Cairo in the British Civil War Colonial Service said, no, there's this thing called nationalism. The Arabs have bought into it. And if we try and fight against it, it's going to only produce uprisings and revolts. So better to work with nationalism. And the best way to do that is to partner with our wartime allies, the Hashemites, who led the Arab revolt Sharif Hussein of Mecca and his sons, Abdullah, uh, Faisal, uh, Ali, and Zaid. And we know them, they know us. We could put them in charge of our new mandates. And the great thing is, because they're total strangers and the places we're parachuting them to be kings, they're going to be totally dependent on us. And there's no one more reliable than someone totally dependent on you. And so the British have what they call the Sharifian or the Hashemite solution of totally dependent totally reliable rulers, ruling these territories on their behalf, which made them look even more like they were sovereign, independent states 
when the peoples within those territories knew full well that they were under colonial occupation. And the other thing you're going to get besides just states is you're going to get nationalism. And the nationalism will take as its target the British in Iraq, Palestine, Transjordan, the French in Syria and Lebanon. And in relationship to Palestine at that time, so when we get to the, you know, the mandate period, um, how is it seen on the ground? And, and what are the first, what kind of changes do yeah. we start to see yeah. now? Because now, obviously, for, yeah. under the Ottomans, there was a certain amount, but very small amount of migration, but it really escalates. Well, the British were favoured by an unexpected turn in the war, towards the end of the war, when the Ottoman Empire, or Palestine, opened itself up. And the newly installed Lloyd George was asked if the British army should go for Jerusalem. And he says, let's go for it. So we were the military conquerors of um, Palestine before any discussions at Versailles or whatever. When it comes to the mandate, of course, we wrote our own. We wrote our own mandate for Palestine. And this is a very peculiar form of colonialism. Um, we were the colonial power. We administered but the colonizers were the Zionists. Now, in the 1920s, that was not much more than a trickle. Indeed, towards the, 19, towards the end of the 1920s, Weissmann said to fellow Zionists, wow, in effect, we got away with that. I'm wondering when the British are going to ask us, where are all these Jews who want to come to Palestine? Mm -hmm. They weren't there, a few thousand. Obviously, that was transformed uh, by the rise to power of Hitler. But in the 1920s, we had this extraordinary situation where the British were operating the classic devices of indirect rule and divide and rule. So there were key Arab figures, notables, through whom we were uh, governing. We were dividing them when it came to posts like the mayor of Jerusalem or whatever. But on the ground, slowly by slowly, uh, land was being bought up, sometimes perhaps ironically, sold by absentee Arab landlords to Zionists who were um, offering a good sum. But that's only a, a sort of indication of what's to happen in the 30s, because the extraordinary thing about the 30s, if I can jump forward to mm -hmm. the 30s, is that before the end of the 30s, and I can't emphasize enough, before the beginning of the Second World War, the British had more or less acknowledged defeat with their mandate policy in Palestine. Uh, there was a revolt by Arabs in 1936 on a sort of scale that compares with the Spanish Civil War, which everybody in this country has heard of, but very few people have heard about this Arab revolt. And during a pause in the Arab revolt, which was against this sudden relative flood of um, immigrant Jews from, from Germany, uh, there was a commission of inquiry by the British, the Peel Commission. And this Peel Commission report deserves reading because they say that the British have been responsible for uh, an insoluble problem, the country is ungovernable, the only thing we can do is have two separate states. Um, it was an admission of failure. Uh, ten years before, in 1947, Ernest Bevin stood up in Parliament and said we failed. This mandate policy, this, this kind of clever, clever hybrid colonialism from the point of view of the British had been an abject failure. Mm -hmm. From the point of view of the Zionists, it was something to work on, which is why they accepted every suggestion, reluctantly sometimes from the British, knowing it was something they could build on, which of course they did uh, after the war. 
But, the, but even in the 20s, there were certain there were, there were numbers, uh, there were significant numbers, and you had things like the what, what's referred to by his resident, you know, the massacre of, of Jewish people in Hebron as well. Yeah. Uh, yes. So there were enough numbers there, and of yeah. course, Tel Aviv, places like this, they didn't exist before, but they were they did exist in the, 20, in the 1920s right. as well. I think the general pattern is two things I've mentioned there. Before the First World War, it was widely reported by relatively disinterested parties that Arabs were not anti-Semitic. After all, there weren't very many Jews there. To take Jenin, by the way, I had to bring this along. Um, the Times on Friday, on Tuesday of last week, uh, Jenin, um, loss of life by Palestinians in the, uh, in the north of the West Bank. Um, in 1922, in Jenin, there were 2,300 Arabs and seven Jews. Mm. Now, in that context, Jews were tolerated. They were mainly religious. They were there for various reasons. There was no anti-Semitism to speak of, apart from occasional uh, outrages. What the Arabs were hostile to was the Zionists. And if anybody's any doubt about um, the difference between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, that's it. The Arabs were happy to have Jews, but they weren't happy to be colonized by uh, a colonizing movement. And the most interesting single document of that early period, 1919, Eugene's fellow Americans, um, King and Crane, a very eminent businessman, a very ed eminent educationist, were asked by the people at Versailles to go to Palestine and ask people what they thought. And the people told them what they thought. And King Crane wrote an enormous report uh, out of one, uh, and I would select one phrase from it. They said, if the Zionist um, uh, project goes ahead as intended with British support, with a certainty like fate, with a certainty like fate, it will be, produce an ungovernable country. And Zionism can only be imposed by force of arms. This is a long way away from what Lloyd George mm. thought, yeah. which was that if the Jews were there, capitalist, you know, inventive, dynamic, hardworking, there would be prosperity, and the Arabs would say, oh, terrific, isn't it wonderful? But they didn't. So we, we've got to the creation of these countries, but, uh, you know, governed by friend, you know, well, governed by a couple of brothers, you know, uh, were friends, of the, friends of the British government. It doesn't go well, does it, for them, well, particularly for one of them in Iraq? Well, you know, I mean, in a sense, to judge the success of the independent Arab states after the Second World War by the revolutions at top of them mm. has a certain logic to it. So no, I guess it didn't go terribly well for <laughs> the Hashemites in Iraq. By the time they were toppled in 1958, the Arab world had been utterly transformed. The forces of nationalism had only gained in momentum in the aftermath of the Second World War. And the demonstrated weakness of France, which after all had lost the war and been occupied by Nazi Germany, a Britain that won the war, but only just, and was so weakened economically, militarily, it had such a reconstruction bill on its own territory, that the scope of keeping countries under colonial domination against their wishes was gone. And so, for people who were politically engaged across the Arab world, the first goal had been to try and achieve their independence within their own boundaries, within Syria, within Iraq, within Lebanon. But the more legitimate form of nationalism across the Arab world had always been a kind of transnational mm. 
identity as Arabs. And Arab nationalism begins to gain in force of ideological power at just the moment where it's really losing any concrete potential to be realized. Because those colonial states in which Syrians or Iraqis fought for their independence created political interest groups that just didn't see how dissolving their borders into a greater Arab entity was going to preserve their wealth, their power, their place in the world. In a sense, there was a contradiction that emerged in the post-Second World War Arab world that everyone was going to be driven by national interests that were quite narrow, but talking a language of pooling their resources together, take collective action as Arabs to resolve their historic failings, and none graver than the loss of Palestine, 1948, and the creation of the State of Israel, which then becomes arch enemy number one for the newly emergent Arab states. Okay? But then also, you know, th that they're going to be trying to uh, achieve the redistribution of wealth. You have so much oil in countries with very small populations. You have so much water and agriculture in countries like Iraq and Egypt that could feed the drier parts. If the Arabs were to come together and make common cause, this would make them as power among the powers. The, the, the Soviets, the Americans, the Europeans, the Arabs would be right up there. Okay? And in a sense, what makes it particularly legitimate is that the Arabs are so conscious that the carve-up of their broader Arab homeland into discrete nation-states was an imperial project of divided rule. They saw it in their heart of hearts, not that it was a kind of cock-up of the British and French that the map took the shape it did, but a conspiracy of the imperial powers to divide the Arabs among themselves the better to rule them. And so there is a fervent belief among the people in the streets that they must overthrow governments that are acting selfishly to preserve their nation-state interests and work towards governments that are trying to bring all Arabs together to erase the imperial boundaries of divided rule and allow the Arabs to emerge in their full potential in the post-Second World War world. And, and that tension meant that regimes like the Hashemites in Iraq were simply artifacts of a different historic moment. They were no longer relevant in 1958. And they fell with a speed that was absolutely astonishing. Mm. The closest thing you've seen to it will have been the Arab Spring uprisings of 2011, where again, another elite that seemed out of time, out of, out of step with history, was toppled very, very quickly by popular movements. But I guess the previous yeah. moment of enthusiasm would have been against well, well, the monarchies. Yeah, well, I think we'll talk, yeah, we'll talk about the... Well, it's interesting, though, but that doesn't happen in Jordan, but it happens in Iraq. Jordan's a Is wonderful it? exception. Yeah. And there's no queen, clear, quick and clear explanation, except maybe smaller population, lack of big urban centers, mm. and a sense of loyalty between the king and his military that protected him from the most dangerous source to all the other areas. And somebody once said to me, if you look at the history of Jordan, if you look at the history of the marriages, yeah. it tells you so much about the politics of Jordan, because yeah. King Hussein's first wife is British. Egyptian, actually. It's, it's Egyptian British, don't you? No, no, no is it second, second wife? One is British. Sorry, no, sorry. First wife is Egyptian. Egyptian. That's right. Second is British. Then yeah. the third one is American. Because the shift... Third one's Palestinian. Yeah. Well, the fourth, well, <laughs> yeah, fourth, one's, fourth American. one's American. So he goes through, you know, it's, you imagine all the people you've got to keep happy. Yeah. Yeah. And then his son marries a Palestinian because Palestinian. if you are going to be in, if you're going to rule Jordan now, 
well, the vast majority of people in that country are of Palestinian origin. Who does his son marry? He, he got married a few weeks ago. He did just get married. And, and who does he marry? A Saudi. You know, I'm so glad you knew the answer <laughs> to that because I suddenly felt like having corrected you three times in a yeah. row. You were just about to get your revenge. Yeah, I did do. I did do. <laughs> anyway, but thank you. Even if you, did, even if you knew and just gave me that moment, thank no. you very much. But no, but, um, but it's interesting. It does give you an... Indi- as, as trivial as that might sound, oh. it tells you quite a lot because these marriages very often... You know, no matter what we want to think about them, the romantic nature of them, there's an element of, for some of them, there's an element of political expediency, and actually, it's not a bad idea. You know, if you're, jo- if you're a Jordanian crown prince now, marrying somebody from the Gulf is probably not a bad idea in terms of finance going forward. And in the past, it was, very, it was the best thing to be marrying somebody who was the military power that you may be relying on. Totally. Yeah. So anyway, but so we'll talk about, so we can talk about, I think we need to talk about Arab nationalism and the whole kind of what happens in the 50s onwards with all the revolutions, etc. But I suppose before we get to that, because there's a big elephant in the room that kind of like there drives a lot of those kind yeah. of like revolutions that we need to talk about then, I suppose, that small little matter of the creation of the State of Israel. Yeah. Yes, can I just say in passing, something Eugene said reminds me of the situation in Africa where you had African states um, inheriting you know, from colonial rulers. Um, and there was a certain degree of pan-Africanism in the late 50s, early 60s. But the only thing that the OAU, the Organization for African Unity, could agree on early on was they were not going to change any of the state boundaries. They were there. And you can understand why there were vested interests in that being the case. Um, can I just say one other thing before we look at uh, beyond, after the uh, Second World War? Uh, It's very easy to be accused, as historians, of being wise after the event. Mm -hmm. And my PhD supervisor used to suggest to me that uh, there's always somebody at that time who gets it right. All you've got to do is to find out who it was. (laughs) And uh, in my book, and I mean literally in my book, the man who got it right was the third high commissioner, Mm -hmm. you know, the colonial period, of the uh, mandate period, uh, Sir John Chancellor. He took over in 1929, and unlike any of his predecessors, well, his two predecessors or his successors, he recognised what a terrible mistake the British had made. He said we were backing the wrong horse. He described the Balfour Declaration as a blunder, and it pretty well broke him. He sought early retirement. Um, he was due to retire, but he sought early retirement because he found himself unable to sustain his own British imperial master's policy. Uh, unwilling to, but also increasingly uh, unable. And the one other thing I'd like to say before we get to post-Second World War is that the, um, we haven't used the word yet, but the nimbyism of, yes, poor Jews, you've got a problem, but you're not coming here. This is what motivated the British early on when we're looking at people being persecuted in Russia and Poland. In the uh, uh, 1930s, when clearly Hitler's is the barbarous attack on the Jews as a people, even then the world community is saying, how awful, but you can't come here. And the conference at Evian in France in 1938, 38 or so countries uh, discussed the, the situation, and only one, I think it was the Dominican Republic, said, well, we'll take some. But for the others, they were all saying, let's support the Zionist project mm-hmm. in Palestine. And indeed, the Zionists were going around saying, yes, you jolly well will. They didn't want Jews to be accepted everywhere else. 
because they had their own uh, fixed uh, um, prospect of, of building the so-called Jewish national home in Israel, and indeed uh, a lot of evidence over the years of clearing out the indigenous population. Um, and, and this last year, I was going to say, after the Second World War, we get nimbyism on a global scale because the UN, having been given this disastrous situation in Palestine, which the British simply couldn't handle and had to admit they failed in, they, almost to a man, except for the Arab states, said, yes, 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 uh, we back the creation of the State of Israel, which, of course, followed about uh, six months after they'd done their inquiry. And it's interesting that both the Soviet Union and the Americans, who couldn't agree about very much at that time, agreed on that policy. So that was nimbyism on the grand scale. And I wanted to make the point that mm. Zionism was only one answer to the Jewish question. The obvious alternative answer was for countries to continue to welcome Jewish refugees as and when they arrived, which the Americans had done uh, for a long time, which the British had done for a long time, but was no longer deemed to be the, the answer by the great powers. Um, in the middle of the 20th century. So, what, so as we, we get to, we, it's ungovernable by now, this Palestine. There are lots of, you know, we're talking about now, but the end of the Second World War. It's ungovernable. The British wash their hands of it, is that phrase that we often use. It goes to the UN, there's a declaration that there's going to be a partition of, is, of two countries, Israel, Palestine, and obviously international Jerusalem. Um, but it doesn't work out like that, does it? Well, uh, I wouldn't want to jump much further beyond 1948, but just before we go, uh, we, we leave 1948, um, th there was a, a strong... Um, uh, obviously, the Second World War transformed uh, global opinion to the Jews in the sense that the horror of what they had suffered was unmistakable and unspeakable. Um, uh, even, um, yeah, I mean, it, people, it was unspeakable. Mm. And there was, therefore, a huge sympathy for the survivors of the Holocaust, people coming out of the camps. Uh, and uh, the, they had to go somewhere. And the Zionists, again, were very well organized, having effectively driven out the British from, um, from Israel. They were very good at collecting people from uh, Western Europe and taking them to... Um, Palestine and the story of the Exodus is one episode of that kind, which is a deeply tragic um, comment on the on the British Mandate period because we refused to let them in. Um, so it was a one can understand how there was genuine sympathy for the Jews by then. Not, it wasn't just we don't want you here, but yes, if you want to go to Israel, you shall. You shall. And so the partition took place, and the uh, the Jewish state was about 55% of the territory. But interestingly, not until 1952 did Jews outnumber Arabs mm. in the mm -hmm. combined um, itself, yeah. in, in that combined state. So, what kind of impact do you think it has the creation the, the creation of Israel and what happens then? Because obviously, yeah, the, the, the de there's a declaration of independence which is not accepted by all the Arab states. Well, uh, as, yeah. I mean, Eugene would, would be the expert on this, but clearly. <laughs> There was a kind of pan-Arabism, but uh, the Arab response to the declaration of the State of Israel in May 48 was pretty hopeless and chaotic and fragmented. Uh, only the Jordanians had a military force to yeah. uh, really um, to count, and they took uh, what we call the West Bank and um, 
East Jerusalem and held them until 1967. So, but the Arab forces, they would, as I say, they were, they were unorganized. I, I draw the parallel in the book um, in the consequence of the Russian Revolution mm. when the Bolshevik state was hanging on for its dear life, just as the Jewish state was hanging on really, literally for mm. dear life. And the Allies, no, not really coordinating. It didn't really work. And in the end, the, this minute the state develops and, and becomes hardened and, of course, a very powerful military force. And there have been, as you know, um, repeated attempts. I remember very well when I was nine, the Suez Crisis, uh, 67, 67 war, um, and the 1973. I mean, the, there have been a number of mm. Arab, in inverted commas, um, conflicts with the, with the State of Israel, but never very effective. Mm. And uh, I'd, I'd bow to Eugene for the explanation for that. But. Was, it, was it because the Jordanians had a secret deal? No, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's my colleague Avi Schleim's contribution yeah. to the discussion. I think the first thing you have to say before then moving on to reasons for Arab defeat in 48 is that Israel fought an incredibly good war mm. and it fought a war with the courage of conviction that if they didn't win that war, that Zionism would be over. The memory of what Nazi Germany did to the Jews of Europe was very fresh in their minds and the idea that others might seek to exterminate Jews who were perceived to be an existential threat just gave the stakes for the Israelis that were, there was no room for defeat. There was no room to lose. So one reason for the, the victory is that. But then there are a lot of other quite you know, strategic reasons why Israel won that war. And I think this has generated, uh, in some ways, controversial scholarship. My colleague Avi Schleim is one of the authors there. You may have heard of some of these historians like Benny Morris or, uh, Benny Morris, Tom Segev, Ilan Pape, uh, all Israelis, interestingly, and they all based their work on what they found declassified in Israeli archives. And so it makes it kind of hard to impugn their sources or their motives, because they're Israelis working from Israeli sources. And in the process, they have tried to combat what they see as being a kind of nationalist-driven telling of the war's story by Israelis that sees it as a miraculous victory. And instead, they just try and show ways in which it wasn't miraculous. It just reflects the way that wars are won. Mm. And in that, firstly, that Israel had more soldiers in the field. Though it is often said that Israel was surrounded by Arab states, the combined populations of which, you know, outnumbered the Jews in Israel by mm. a factor of, you know, 100 to 1 or something. I, I made yeah, up I the number, but... You know, but it doesn't matter what the big, how big your population is. What matters is how many soldiers you have in the field. And these post-colonial Arab states, only recently securing their independence, did not have developed militaries. They had no experience. It was one of the things that the British and French were least willing to hand over to the national authorities. You know, in Syria, in 1946, when the French lead, the last thing they hand over is control of the military. So small numbers, ill-trained soldiers, huge explanation. Second, weapons, supply mm -hmm. of weapons. Britain and France turned off the tap of the supply of military hardware to their former client states. They had total monopoly in the provision, whereas the Israelis were able to draw on diaspora communities and their contacts to ensure that they found ways to get around the embargo on arms to this conflict that the Arabs suffered and the Israelis didn't, and it just totally shifted the balance. And then the third is this idea that maybe the Arabs weren't so hostile to the idea of a Jewish state as 
we have been told, and that's where Avi's contribution to show that there was secret diplomacy going on behind the scenes mm. between the Jordanians, who had always aspired to extend their almost landlocked territory towards the Mediterranean. And during that partition plan that Gardner referred to in 1937, creating two states, yes, but the Jewish state would be presumably under the instruments of the Yeshuv. The Arab state was going to be appended to Transjordan and ruled by Abdullah. So it was never going to be a Palestinian state for the Palestinians. And that set in Abdullah's mind the idea that in the creation of a Jewish state, there might be opportunities for the extension of his Jordanian state. And he negotiated behind the scenes with the leadership of the issue, the Jewish executive. And so all this scholarship is just giving us a sense that 1948 was won through a better armed, larger army, better prepared <laughs> Jewish state, and that the Arab states, and here Avi and I edited a book called The War for Palestine, taking it country by country, the one thing you could say is that they really never had unity of purpose. Mm. The Arab states were as much in conflict with each other to make sure no one like Abdullah benefited from the war to gain territory at the expense of others. It was almost an inter-Arab conflict more than an Arab-Israeli one and I think that played a really important role in the way the war played out too. But I suppose the, the creation of the State of Israel and then the, 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 the refugee crisis that that makes with Palestinians going to Jordan, Lebanon, in particular Syria, and Egypt, mm -hmm. not, not so much Egypt because it pushed, yeah, pushed back them back into Gaza. Um, but what it also does is Egypt doesn't take over Gaza. It, it doesn't want anything to do with Gaza, quite frankly, and, always, and, and, and it made that very clear. But the Jordanians do. It's that, the modern state, again, sort of part two of the making of the, mod, of the modern Middle East is from 1948 onwards, because suddenly we have another, a new country in, in Israel that replaces you know, the mandate. And what we have then is a, a lot of Arab countries, I suppose, now having something that they can have, and, and populations they now have a new enemy, or they have something that they can basically have, maybe not necessarily as an enemy, but as a kind of a central point where you say, this is our focus. If we get rid of this entity in our midst, we will then have the ability to all join together and have this kind of pan-Arab yeah. utopia, which then starts to happen. So once the Israeli state is created and you have this Palestinian refugee crisis that on our, you know, that's when, within a few years, the big Arab, the, 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 the important states, you know, neighboring that country, start to topple, Shockwaves. don't they, and change. Shockwaves. I mean, I, I, I'm sure, Gardner, you'd agree that in, in a very real sense, the 1948 war engenders the Arab-Israeli conflict, which is going to be one of the defining features of the modern Middle East. Mm. The militarization of the region, mm. the Arab-Israeli mm. conflict, you know, in, in no small way, as you say, the elephant in the room, mm. you know, the Palestine-Israel conflict, is one of the defining features of, of this region. And it's terribly ironic because those who genuinely sought a solution to the Jewish question at the end of the 19th century didn't envisage uh, a Jewish homeland constantly at war, yeah. constantly militarized, constantly subject to attack. Um, this is not what they had in mind. And of course, the other more tragic irony is that when people like Theodore Herzl were founding the movement, they were saying we need somewhere where our Jewish people will be safe. But 
Israel came into existence, not the, not the mandate, but the state of Israel came into existence after the ultimate tragedy had already befallen the Jews, um, the six million. Yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's a tragic story full of irony, uh, and a lot of innocent people have been suffering, as they still do. Yeah. This, I must say, it may be history, but it's not the past. Yeah. It's the present. It's still the present yeah. in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, and there, there, it's a tragic irony, and I hope you're not going to ask us what the solution is, because I don't see one. <laughs> I, I did send Paddy Ash down to give a solution to Jerusalem once. It's all about who, it's all about who collects the bins, ultimately. So then, uh, Eugene, the next stage, obviously, is... And we have to obviously come, come to the end of the conversation, unfortunately, because we're running out of time. But I suppose the big thing in the creation of the M Middle East, which then takes us really up to uh, the Arab Spring, is that you two, there's... You have revolutions, revolutions not by the people initially, but revolutions by within the military, mm -hmm. where they take over countries like Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and and start to talk about that Arab nationalism. You know that the, how many people not remember? You know that there was a United Arab Republic. You know uh, between Syria and Egypt, and people in Syria definitely remember it, not with not with much fondness, but they remember it. But so why why do we have this? You know why does it all fail? Why why does it go so horribly wrong? For, uh, you know, it, can you just simply blame it on the creation of the state of Israel, or is it just simply that the that they hadn't been given enough time to develop as proper countries before they were taken over by what can only be described as ruthless dictators? Well, Akil, I, I think you put your finger on a word I would, I would use, which is the military. Mm. And every one of the revolutions that toppled the old governments in the Middle East was led by a military man. And the result was to bring the military into politics in the Arab world everywhere except for the conservative monarchies that were able to retain their kings, so in the Gulf, in Morocco, and Jordan, or two uh, republics, uh, Lebanon and, and Tunisia. But otherwise, where you had revolutions, it brought the military to power. And I think m because it was in the context of the Arab-Israeli conflict, a conflict in which the Arab side continued to lose against Israel, that it created a culture both of governments that couldn't admit their faults and suppress people who opposed them. And the military is never particularly tolerant of those who don't obey orders. It's in the culture of the military. And I think it distorts Arab politics in a way that denies the Arab people from achieving their full potential. And I say that not idealistically, but just by looking at the success of Arab communities in diaspora, not least here in Britain, mm. where they achieve the highest educational standards, where they achieve you know, great prosperity, where you know, they demonstrate the capacity to take whatever the trends are in the world today to you know, the highest level, but not in their own countries. And I think it's because of the repression that has come mm -hmm. with the military and politics, and if you want anywhere today that demonstrates that particularly well, just look at what's going on in Sudan and what mm -hmm. it will take to extirpate the military from politics and put them back in the barracks and leave politics as the domain uniquely of civilians, where, where armies answer to civilians. And until we get there, I feel as though the Arab world's potential to achieve in the 21st century will always be concerned. And that's why you think the, what many would call the so-called Arab Spring, why it's failed, essentially, is because the military is still there? That is a work in progress. <laughs> and I, I, don't, I think to, to, to take a decision that has already failed 
is just to say its first iteration yeah. has been has run into counter-revolution. But it's very interesting to see how Algeria had its Iraq after the Arab Spring, Sudan had its confrontation with the military, Lebanon, Iraq. So the legitimate demands of citizens to have their you know, civil rights, their legal rights, their property rights respected by their governments and to have government answerable to them is an idea which I don't think has failed yet in the Arab world. Mm. Even though it seems further and more remote, it is still very much what people aspire to. And I would expect to see Mark III, Mark IV, before eventually you'll see the military back in the barracks and accountable government come. When it does, guys, buy real estate in the Middle East. It'll be a happening place. Many, well, in the Gulf, it probably already is, but uh, we haven't yeah. talked about the Gulf, um, and, and I'm quite happy to do that, quite frankly, but not to. But, uh, but we haven't talked about that, but I suppose what I am going to do is actually, because we do need to ask a few questions, I'm sure that people want to ask some questions, is that one last thing before we jump, jump to that, is to actually to ask you that question that you didn't want to be asked, which is, we know where we are right now. As briefly as you can possibly say, where do you think we are, what, what do you think is going to come next? I'm only a historian, and all I can do is try and explain how we got here. What I would say is don't give the task of bringing peace to the Middle East to Donald Trump or Jared Kushner. Jared Kushner, when he was given this task, make a deal, began by saying to those to whom he spoke, which did not include the Palestinians, don't tell me about the history, I'm not interested. Yeah. That's not, I think, the way ahead. Agreed. Agreed? And so you don't think the Abraham Accords are going to deliver? peace in the Middle East? Obviously, Israel normalizing relationships in its neighborhood is a stabilizing factor. But to see Israel concluding beneficial treaty relations with countries without having to make any concessions to address the underlying problems of the Palestinians mm. seems to me to be a process that will not lead to greater stability in the long run. And Rabin, very famously, in a, in a lecture in 1978, referred to uh, occupation as a cancer at the heart of Israeli society. Um, do, you think, do you think they'll ever be able to deal with that cancer? <coughs> I simply don't know, but the most abiding uh, well, coverage of modern Israel in the last few weeks has been this extraordinary mm. uh, Israeli protest against the politicization of the judiciary and I don't think Benjamin Netanyahu, even he can go on forever. I just don't know where that's going. And maybe some different political yeah. framework will develop within Israel to look for... And it's worth reminding people, it's been 27 weeks now. And for 27 weeks, every Saturday, there are, was it 150 to 250,000 people demonstrating in Tel Aviv? Yeah. And a good friend of mine, she lives four or five doors away from Benjamin Netanyahu, oh. which has annoyed her for many years. But now it's really annoying her because there's a demonstration outside her house every night in Jerusalem. <laughs> so I think we should now open it up to uh, the floor if anyone's got any questions. There's a young chap here with his hand up. Hi, thanks so much. That was uh, incredibly insightful. Um, you mentioned the um, tragedy and um, the Jewish question um, in Vandy in 1942, but on the other hand, there's the tragedy of international foreign policy. And do you think that feeds um, into um, Palestinians continuing to suffer and US foreign policy, for example, um, 
they're the biggest supporter of, for example, the Israeli lobby, or, or whether that actually does exist, if that's a thing which many do deny. And do you think that needs to be rectified or remedied in some way before Palestinians can have their um, rights um, respected? Do you want to just repeat that last bit? Uh, for example, the, um, the US um, authorities, the government, for example, for example, Obama had to support the Israeli lobby. Ah, so it's and the, you know, you, you there's a, <laughs> that's Al-Qaeda terminology. The, you defeat, to defeat the near enemy, you have to defeat the far enemy. Uh, there's, there's policies in foreign, foreign policy of Western nations, particularly America, of a, uh, have to change before the plight of the Palestinians can be resolved. Well, there are two things there I'd say. One is the controversial role of the Jewish lobby in American politics. But the other is that palpably, since Reagan, the Israelis have been given a pretty free hand, as far as I can see, uh, or very little restraint has been exercised on Israelis. I mean, it's very easy to make pronouncements which show that you're being even-handed, but of course the Balfour Declaration was even-handed on paper, but in practice uh, the, the support has always been on one side rather than the other. There are a lot of myths and everything. You've clarified how complex it is, but for example, the Palestinians, uh, my, my f fundamental question will be still, is a two-state solution a dead duck totally, or is it feasible to resurrect it? Now, remember, Shimon Peres got the deal with Arafat in, in, in Oslo. Hands were shaking. He goes back. Not Shimon Peres. No. Well, Yitzhak Rabin. Yitzhak Rabin. Yeah. No, Shimon Peres was the actual guy there. All oh, right, OK. Yeah. So, anyway, the, the point being that the deal was done. Arafat comes back, rips it up. You know, you can't deal with them, was the, the Israeli mm. response. How can you trust yeah. them? But the same thing is, Palestinians, if I'm right, 300,000 left in 1948. That has exponentially grown to millions. The Jordanians don't back them. None of the Arab states back them. None of the Arab states want a Palestinian solution particularly. They're all making deals with Israel. It's very, very emotional, but it is still a fact that, 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 that those are the facts. So it's waltzed away. And let's be honest, they were given the West Bank, Israel, and it was taken off them. They got it back in 67. But that now, it's all seen as conquering. So it's a very complex thing. Mm. I'm a practical man, and I'm, I'm very, I want a two-state solution, because I think that's a practical way through. But is it dead? Well, I'll hand that over to Gardner. But you that's not all particularly correct, what you said there. Well, I think uh, two things. Um, Israel is clearly far too small to hold all Jews in the world. I think about half the world Jewish community lives in Israel now. What we call what's left of Palestine is far too small to hold all Palestinians. So in that sense, those two nation states are, are simply impractical. But above all, I would go back to Theodor Herzl, Weissmann, Above all, Jabotinsky, the very, uh, well, the extreme, uh, I mean, highly rational, very logical Jewish-Israeli uh, writer, a Zionist writer of the early 1920s, who said, we must beat the Arabs, then we can make peace with them. But the uh, driving um, ambition of extreme Zionists, and there are many Zionists, so I try to identify you know, the different brands, but the if you like, the extreme Zionist doesn't want a two-state solution. They want a one-state solution. And in the 1930s, they were saying, 
And there's all this other space. All the, the Palestinians can go into, they can go to Jordan, they can go to, there's lots of space for them. I don't think, frankly, and judging from what they've done, they, they're not seeking a two-state solution. They may pay lip service to it for convenience, but I don't think the, if I may say, allied the two, the Zionist-inclined current Israeli government wants a two-state solution, in which case there won't be one. Well, he's, Netanyahu has actually, actually said it himself, that you talk and talk and talk until there's no, there's no country to live in. Um, any other questions? Please. Oh, this, sorry, we've got to go to this guy. He's had his hand up quite, for quite a while. Um, I'm slightly surprised by uh, um, the, the 1897 being what you described yeah. as the birth of the Middle East, because the birth of the Middle East isn't all about Israel. There's a whole lot of other countries in the Middle East. There's Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Iraq, Iran. And I'm slightly surprised that virtually everything in this discussion has been about Israel. There's a lot more in the Middle East. But also, I'd, I, I would question your, your take of, about the Jewish lobby, because actually, one of the, the main uh, proponents of Israel isn't Jewish at all in, in America. It's the fundamentalist uh, religious mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. That's true, yeah. Well, obviously, we did talk, that's, that was, the, the, we did talk about uh, the, really, the other part of the it's Middle East as well, point. but it's a fair point. I completely agree with you. This is why I said at the end, we haven't really talked about the Gulf. You know, really, which is a whole different conversation, quite frankly, which we, which we could have. But, but you're right. I think on that basis, there's one last final question, and then we have to wrap up. But just to say, well, I'll, yeah, just hand over the microphone to that guy. I want to thank you all of you for um, sharing this perspective on history. I just wanted to put discussion in something that more recently happened and then ask a question related to that. Like, if you look at the last World Cup in Qatar, um, it was very interesting to observe um, how many countries from all across the world, not only from the government level, but football teams would um, very outspokenly uh, object against doing anything in Qatar because of um, human rights um, violations, which I don't want to dispute. I'm sure there is something like that happening. But it's more about the inconsistency, or one may even say hypocrisy, um, because we don't have to be like historians, you just have to be a little bit open to reading the news that is happening day to day with Palestinians, yet whether it's like football teams or anything like they do are happily engaging in Israel in football tournaments or like the, or if you take Russia and they've been excluded from several tournaments, but there's nothing like that for Israelis. Um, I'm not saying that we have, as an average person, influence on that. So my question is more like, what can we, or what can you, what can we do more to have the average person, whether it's like a member of a football team of the English team or of the German team or somebody of the fans or if somebody going to school be aware that this is not just happening in Qatar or in Saudi Arabia, which maybe cannot be denied, but it's happening also, for example, in, in Israel and Palestine so that we can get a bit more awareness and um, so we can have like an equal treatment and not just this hypocrisy when it's an Arab country that mm -hmm. we don't actually all mm -hmm. stand together and speak out. This is acceptable. Yeah. yeah, I actually went to Doha to the World Cup and it was a brilliant World Cup and it was a very important contrast with the very bad press that had been given to Qatar in advance. And in so many ways, I think it was the most woman friendly, family friendly, open <laughs> The, the country made everything works that the world could come to Doha 
to take part in this. There were five teams from the MENA region that were in the World Cup finals, so the idea that it was not the right place to have the match because no one played football there was disproved there and then. And I agree with you that I think that there was a degree of prejudice or racism built into it because we all remember the previous World Cup was hosted by a country that already had occupied an annexed Crimea and has an out, you know, well-known problem with gay rights and human rights and, you know, and I don't remember anyone questioning whether it was right to go to Russia for the World Cup prior to, to Doha. So we face prejudices. We face racism. We face double standards. The best thing you can do is call them out. They won't go away. I can't say we'll win, but I will tell anyone who asks me, I was there, and it was a bloody brilliant World Cup. Well done, Doha. It was. Not the right result, <laughs> if you're an England fan. Not the right result at all, <laughs> which is probably the best um, thing to end on. I just want to say thank you very much to uh, you a round of applause for uh, Gardner and for Eugene. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the festival, please subscribe, share this episode with others and leave a rating. Don't forget to mark your calendars as the Bradford Literature Festival returns for its 10th year from 28th of June to the 7th of July 2024.